So assassination attempts, in my opinion, make some of the best film uh, stories, movies. It can be the MacGuffin that moves the whole story forward. It's always fun. Two of my favorite assassination attempts happened to U.S. presidents. Right? Yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk some assassination attempts. The first one you might know because it is one of my personal favorites, and that is of Teddy Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt was campaigning in Wisconsin, which is clearly a place you can get shot at. <laughs> when a saloon owner named John uh, Shrank uh, came up to him with a gun and shot him in the chest. Um, now, this is the Teddy Roosevelt. So, of course, what saved Teddy is he had a metal glasses case in his jacket and a 50-page speech that he was going to recite for his campaign. So the bullet, because of the glasses case in the campaign speech, did penetrate his skin, but got stuck and lodged in his chest um, because of of the yeah because of the 50-page speech that was folded up into quarters and the glasses case. So it stopped the impact. Um, most men, believe it or not, after they've been shot, would cancel the events for the rest of the day. But not Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt got up onto the stage and gave that 50-page, 90-minute speech, his opening line, Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you understand that I've just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. My other favorite story of an assassination attempt you can always be happy about assassination attempt Cause stories because they, they fail. You can't be happy about assassination stories, true thing. Is that of our seventh president, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's would-be assassin named Richard Lawrence um, in 1835 uh, brought two pistols to shoot Andrew Jackson. The reason he brought two pistols is because if you've ever worked with old Flint from 1835, sometimes... The powder gets wet and they misfire. Well, unfortunately for our would-be assassin, Richard, not only did his first gun misfire, but his second gun misfired as well. Andrew, not wanting to take the assassination attempt lightly, proceeded to take his cane and beat the man on the ground until the police came and took him into the authorities and apprehended him. So we've traveled... A long way through Luke this year. We've seen all the major players, um, Jesus, his disciples, uh, the people of Samaria, Israel, the leaders of the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. We know all these guys. And finally, uh, now we are left with the climax of the story. We've hit where we're going to see the assassination attempt, at least character assassination attempt, of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. So that is why we are here. So again, so turn to Luke 19.45, and we will read through, we're going to read all the way through Luke 20, verse 19. So this is Luke 19.45. Put my water somewhere. There you are. No, I'll be good. Okay. Jesus cleanses the temple. 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The authority of Jesus was questioned if you turn to chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? They discussed among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it is from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also was beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, my love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is his heir. They said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do then? He will come and kill his tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked at for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into this section about authority a day, about this idea of assassinating someone's character so that we can have our way, um, Lord, may we relate this to our own lives. Um, and we see the little Pharisees that um, pop up from time to time um, in our lives that try to dethrone the king. Um, and we be honest with those sins um, and seek ways to put them to death. In your son's name, amen. Mm-hmm. So there is always a motive behind the murder. If you remember when we covered apologetics a couple of years ago, we did a section on motives for the murder of Jesus. This was from J. Werner Wallace, who's a cold case detective in L.A. And he said there were three motives for every violent crime. Can anyone tell me, if you can remember, what are the three motives for every violent crime? Who can remember? Money. Money is one. Power. Power. Women. Yeah. What? Lust. Women. Lust is the term we're going to use. Women. Yes. Yes. That's what it is. Money, power, and lust are the three uh, players. Now, Jesus has removed the money handlers from the temple. 
And I want you to think about this. The money changers in the temple were not there on their own authority. They didn't just show up one day with carts and be like, hey, I'm going to take this spot. No, you got to remember, they were in league with the authorities at the temple. In a way, they were paying rent for their spot at the temple. So while the money changers and the street vendors were thrown out, it wasn't just them losing profit, it was the Pharisees and scribes who were losing the profit as well. And this is the place that Jesus sets up shop and starts teaching at the temple. And think about it, for Jesus, it has come full circle. We saw in Luke 2, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy going to the temple, sitting on the temple steps, and listening and asking questions to the leaders there. And even then, it says in Luke 2, that they were amazed at how well he knew the scriptures at his age. And now 20 years later, we find Jesus back at the exact same spot with crowds completely drawn into him. The Greek here is that the crowds were not only hanging on his every word, but they were leaning in on him. They literally wanted to be so close to him that they could touch him, that maybe a miracle would happen to them. They were hanging literally on the man. And these are the people that wanted to be near him, the people. But this is your first fill in the blank. The people were the obstacle to the assassination attempt of Jesus. The people were the obstacle to the assassination attempt on Jesus. They were, for lack of a better better term, the steel glasses and the misfiring gun that was in the way of the Pharisees. They knew that if they could get to Jesus, the only way they could get to Jesus was to get past the crowd first. So they had to ask the question, how are we going to uh, discredit Jesus? How are we going to make him look like a fool? Well, they attempt a character assassination. And Jesus didn't take the attempt lying down. He He picked up the cane, much like Andrew Jackson, and pointed it at the leaders of the temple and said that you are indeed the problem. So we're going to cover two points today. The first point is the attempt. So if you see a one on your sheet, it's the attempt. The second point that is also on your sheet is the rebuttal. The rebuttal. The attempt and the rebuttal. So remember this. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and claiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority are you teaching these things? And they said, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority? Don't miss this. This is not a kind question. This is not even an honest question. This is a trap question. Their intention here is not to seek knowledge. They want to trap Jesus in the corner. Because you see, there are only two ways that he can answer this question. And the first one, which is a fill in the blank for you, is that it is a divine authority. Is it a divine authority? And the second one for you, is it a human authority? A human authority. Those are the only two options. A divine authority and a human authority. It says this. uh, if If he says that it's divine... 
then they can attack him as a false prophet because he's going against the established leadership of the temple. Or if he says it's human, then they can tell him that they can tell the crowd that he's just a rebel rouser and he'll be in trouble with the Roman authorities. So what is Jesus to do? David Garland and Arnold Clinton write this. They want him to claim divine authority publicly so they can condemn him for blasphemy. And if he denies that he acts with the divine authority, they can also condemn him for blasphemy for usurping their divine authority. Isn't it, how often does a non-believer do this? How they don't ask honest questions. They just want to ask questions to trap Jesus. There's not seeking knowledge or an answer. There is simply, I want one of my motives met, whether it's power, lust, or financial. And if Jesus is true, he's in the way. So I'm going to try to trap him with my questions. Either their power, finances, or less. It's amazing that both in Scripture and in our lives, we see these motives and how they question authority all the time. Think about it. When we see the power motive carried out by the Pharisees, they are saying, I want Jesus gone because this is my temple and I want to sell whatever I want here. I want the crowds that are hanging on his words to be hanging on my words. They're losing their power and they're scared. And we see that in our times in our lives. Um, likewise, the power of a non-Christian is brought into light here. Because if they dealt with the sin, it would mean giving up their power and giving God the power. And they want nothing to do with that. Then we see the financial motive carried out in Scripture. Think of the rich young ruler, where he said... I have lived up to every commandment. Which means he hasn't been listening to Jesus in the first place, has he? Nope. And Jesus says, then I want you to give him your finances. And he says, I can't do that. He would rather be comfortable than honestly seek God. Which I think that's the one that probably we struggle with most here in Frisco and Prosper and Plano. We'd rather be comfortable than we would after they have to seek God and deal with those things in life. And the last one is the lust motive. Look, I'm going to be frank with you. I've been doing this for over a decade. And I can't count on either one of my hands the number of students who have walked away from the church because they got into a relationship and they got to be doing things in that relationship that they shouldn't be doing. And they would rather do that. So they just leave. Or I've heard this tons of times, especially with some college students. It's like, well, I just couldn't find the right guy in the church, so I had to marry a non-believer outside the church. And it's only led them down to some 2020 vision. Because I promise you, when you're in those lustful moments, you will justify, justify, justify your sin. Only to one day end up on the other side of the relationship and realize that you were never justified before the King of Kings. AJ, that'll never be me. I know some of you are saying that. It'll never be me. I'll never let romantic, Cupid-like feelings get in between my relationship with God. And the fact is, I hope so. I hope it's not you. But I want you to grasp that this lust motivation is an extremely strong one. 
The strongest man in the Bible, the man that God loved most in the Bible, and the wisest man in the Bible all fell into sexual temptation. So do not think that you're greater than the strongest, the wisest, or the one that loved God the most. When it comes to this idea of uh, dealing with heart issues in the sense of romantic feelings, you need to tread very carefully here. Because it it can become a motive to try to discredit God real quickly. And how does Jesus respond to it? He asked them about John the Baptist, everyone's favorite Baptist. Now, what you must understand about John the Baptist is that the crowd loves John the Baptist. He's like a celebrity. He's the Peyton Manning. They see him on all the Papa John's commercials and the DirecTV commercials. They love this guy. He can do no wrong. Okay? They consider him a prophet. So Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism. Was it from heaven? Or human origin? And they discussed among themselves, they being the Pharisees. And, if they, and they said, and we get an insight into the conversation. If we say from heaven, we'll ask, why didn't you believe him? And if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. Because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. Why are they going to stone him? Like, we're the leaders. Well, they would be commanded to according to the law of Deuteronomy 2. Because they're blaspheming a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it's from. So Jesus throws it right back at them. Option one or option two? Human authority? I mean, divide authority or human authority? If they claim heaven, then they ask to ask, then he has to ask why they didn't both don't believe John. And if it's human, everyone in the crowd considers John a prophet and they've seriously lost the hurdle that is keeping them from killing Jesus. So they said, we don't know where it is from. Anyone ever worked in childcare or have little siblings? And they know they're about to, you're all like, yes, yes. You know they're about to hear something that they don't want to hear. So they just go, no, 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 no. Some of you still do that. No. Mom comes in, you're supposed to clean your room. That's what they're doing here. I'm not going to deal with the truth. I'm going to play ignorant. And that's the next fill in the blank. How often do we play ignorant so we don't have to face the truth? How often? How often do we play ignorant so we don't have to face the truth? And this is what makes it even harder for you guys. Skepticism is in vogue in our culture. It's like the cool thing. If to be skeptical is seen, is seen as someone with higher intelligence. Now, let me make this clear. I am not knocking skepticism. Okay? You should be skeptical of what I'm teaching you. You should go home and double check. That's good. Um, when a boy comes up to one of you ladies on a college campus, and I'm just playing the odds here. It's going to happen to one of you. Mm-hmm. And they say something like, I received a message from God. I think we should start dating. Or maybe <laughs> I know that's funny. No. I know that's funny. But I can think of about four or five girls that that's happened to uh, that I know. Like, when that happens, listen, you should be skeptical. Did they say no? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> When someone tries to sell you something at your door, maybe you should be skeptical. Yes. A car salesman, 
always skeptical. But isn't this true? Most skeptics are only skeptical of the things they don't want to be true. Or ignorant of the things they don't like. It's why if I get into a conversation with someone, this happened to me a lot in college, at a college campus, where they're just skeptical of everything. I ask them one of two questions. The first one I ask is, what would it take for you to no longer be skeptical? What would it take? What's the argument? Two, if it was found to be true, my position, would you be willing to change your life to match the laws set forth by the Christian God? Those are the two questions I'll typically ask. And most of the time, I can promise you, their answers to those questions are more absurd than their original skepticism. I don't believe in miracles, so what would it take for you to believe? A miracle. Did you, did you, did you not? One plus one. Still two. Three. Okay. So at some point, you've got to walk away. This is your next one on the blank. For the Christian, I say this. Do not run from God by not answering the demands on your life by playing ignorant. Seek the answers. Don't run from them. So many times in your life as a Christian where you're like, I think God's trying to teach me this. No, 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 no. There's going to be tons of times. But don't play ignorant. Deal with it. So the Pharisees, like an amateur boxer, boxer, have taken a swing at Jesus. He's ducked it, and they've been left open to a counter punch. They think they're playing checkers with God, when the whole time he's playing chess. So here comes the rebuttal. So Jesus starts a story talking about the Pharisees, and he speaks not just to the Pharisees, he calls them out in front of the whole crowd. Baller move. Baller move. Hey, you've already heard it. I've already read it once. Oh, the owner of the vineyard leave the, leaves the servants in charge of the vineyard or the tenants. Servants now think they own the vineyard. That's a nice vineyard. I'm glad I pay rent on this. It's mine now. Owner sends other servants to collect harvest from vineyard keepers. Three times they do harm to those servants. Owner sends a son. Vineyard keepers kill the son, thinking this will give them final authority over the vineyard. Parables. What does this mean? What does this mean? One, the, vi- the vineyard is Israel. So if you're having problems following this, I'm going to literally spell it out with you. The vineyard is Israel. The people in Jesus' audience know this. This isn't like something new to them. They know Israel is called a vineyard in the book of Isaiah. But what you might not know, and I think what makes the story even more powerful, is that the crowd is actually standing in a vineyard. We know this from the histories of Tacitus and Josephus, that around the temple entrance to the temple, the temple gate, was a vineyard that wrapped around it. So the people of Israel here are literally standing inside a vineyard, a temple, and the tenants are in the vineyard, and the son has come to claim his people, namely 
them as the graves. What a rich image. What a rich image. So when he is referencing the vineyard, he's talking about Israel. When he's talking, referencing the tenant farmers, he's talking about the people left in charge taking care of the vine, the Pharisees and the scribes. When he refers to the fruit, it's the people. Here Jesus is commanding the leaders from withholding, he's condemning the leaders from withholding his fruit from them. So in Jesus' allegory, the vineyard produces fruit, but the tenants rebelliously withhold it from their owner. Judgment falls on the tenants. And the vineyard is given to others. But this comparison, it becomes clear that Jesus condemns the leaders. They serve themselves instead of God. Why? Because their motives are power and money here. Their motives are not to honor God. They reject John the Baptist and his demands for the fruits of repentance, Luke 3.8. And they will do violence to Jesus who came to warn them and to set things right. So who are the servants that God has sent? The prophets. Those are the servants referred to in this passage. Whom Israel has over and over again cast out. What does this say about God? So what does this whole section say about God? I think it says this. I think it says God is very long-suffering. God is very long-suffering. He keeps calling people to himself, sending people. And they keep being like, No! 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 I know it's real easy for us to be like, that's not me. That is those sinners. Not me. Pharisees. I don't wear fine linen. Purple tunics. Hey. Now, I want to be clear, and you're not going to hear this now, but I hope you hear this when you are in rebellion. If you want to fight God, beware. He's long-suffering. He will give you the desires of your heart, even if it'll potentially kill you. It's called a natural consequence that happens all the time with my children. I'll give you over to your sin. It'll be exactly what your heart wants. It won't be what your heart needs, which is me. (laughs) What about the son that the vineyard owner sends? This is pretty straightforward allegory here. He did send the son, the vineyard owner, and his name is Jesus. And here, Jesus predicts his own death. Why do they kill him? Why do they kill him? And this is your next film in the blank. To maintain their own power. They wanted to receive their inheritance from the grapes and not the vineyard owner. They wanted to receive their inheritance from the grapes and not the vineyard owner. I'll break that down even more. You're like, AJ, that's an allegory. That doesn't make sense. How often do we look for blessings of God to satisfy our lives rather than God himself? That's the next film of blank. How often do we look for blessings of God to satisfy our lives rather than God himself? I mean, think about it. These vineyard owners, the, the tenants, don't want the riches from the man who bought the vineyard. They just want to take his grapes. Why? For financial gain. For power gain. You can even make the argument for lust gain. It wasn't very hard to divorce a woman back then. You're a third-hand citizen. It's all on you. They want that power. But they won't look to the king to provide it. They just want the blessings of the king. How quickly do we do that? 
We just want the blessings that God has given us to satisfy us, but not God himself. And when those are threatened to be taken away, the vineyard, and given to everyone else, someone else, we say, God forbid. Just like the way the crowd responds to Jesus when they say the vineyard will be taken away from the tenant farmers and given to another. Now, they aren't saying God forbid when the three servants come in and are thrown out. God forbid. They didn't say God forbid when the son came, was killed, cast outside the city, and his corpse left for dead. It wasn't a God forbid there. But you take away someone's grapes. God forbid. We got a huge problem with that. The good question that they should have asked is, who will you give us to, Jesus? Who are you giving the tenant farmers to? Who are you giving the tenant farmers to? Come back as best you can. The Romans... Are you giving them away to the Romans? Someone else? And we do the same. We do the exact same. When our plans for life go astray, we say, God forbid. Instead of saying, where are you taking me? And if these tenant farmers would have just said, Lord, where are you leading? They would have realized that the man who was thrown out of the vineyard and left for dead raised from the dead. And with him raising from the dead, he purchased from the tenant farmers the vineyard back with his own blood so that he might be able to tend to the grapes. Most would-be assassins meet their own end. They think they have served a greater purpose And they justify, justify, justify their sin so that they can say that they have. So, will you do the same? Will you justify your own sin before Jesus? Will you pull out your guns only to find them both wet and unable to fire? Or will you attempt to shoot the king only to realize that it takes more than a bullet to kill a bull moose? Or will you trust the vineyard owner? And being grafted into the vine. We pray and we'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you so much for this time we get to have. Lord, may this time we've had, time we will have a discussion, reach deep. May we be honest with our sin. May we turn to you and realize that you are the one who prunes, you are the one that helps me grow. And when we, may we plead for that. May we plead for that. Your son's name. Amen.